the 10th and final conference of the retreat, briefly touches on the significant roles of women in shaping the tradition and life of the church through peacemaking, study, prayer, actions for justice, and holding male power accountable to the fullness of the mystery of God. So good afternoon. afternoon. Last one of these, and we'll see what we can do to land this plane. (laughs) So the the title of this of this uh, conference is the women of the tradition and and of the current church so that's a big thing this could go on forever <laughs> it won't <laughs> I'll try to hit some some highlights and summaries and symbols along the way so one of the um as perks of my job is i get to go to italy at least once a year except for the three years before this one um so i made up for it so since christmas i've been to italy twice with two different groups. Um, and, and I've been doing this for years. I mean, the first time I, I went to, to Rome was in the late 80s, and I was still young, and I'd never been there before, and it was all very exciting. But each subsequent visit, I am re- reinforced with the belief that I can't stand Rome. <laughs> There's a, a, young, a young priest in our, in our community who um, is planning a trip to go over there, and uh, he's getting advice from some of these older guys who have been there and who hated it, you know, n- never liked it. It was, they were forced into jobs. You know, they've been missionaries in, in, in Peru and they're forced to be assistant generals and trapped and this kind of stuff. And so, uh, the young priest's response after hearing this is like, okay, so I will work very hard at making myself look as useless as possible to which I said, you'll fit right in. <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> Um, but there's just something about Rome that I find very stifling and stuffy. Our, our international headquarters, the Augustinians International Headquarters, is right across the little street between the colonnade of St. Peter's and the piazza. Um, our roof, you get a great view of the, of the windows, and we get a nice income from, um, I think it's the Associated Press, who uh, retain the rights to set up their headquarters on a roof when they do that. So it's, it's spectacular, it looks great, and all this kind of stuff. But it's just something about it that I've never really liked. And each time I go, it's like something heavier about it. I've had the, the chance to go to masses. The only Pope's masses that I've been to have been Pope Francis's masses. I've been to a couple of them, because we, we travel sometimes in this. Well, we always travel from Merrimack in the spring, and sometimes that lands on Holy Week. And so we'll go to the Chrism Mass which the Pope will preside at. And that's been very, that's been, been beautiful. But it also is just striking, like, as I'm watching, like, there's nothing but old men. And I mean, old men <laughs> staggering down this aisle. Even the deacons are old men. <laughs> it's like, what is this? Um, I had had some fascinating experiences in St. Peter's Basilica. Um, one year, I think it must have been 2015, and uh, there's an announcement made in the middle of the week that the Pope is going to preside at a, a penance service on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And so everyone in our group was excited, yes, because you could get tickets and go to this. Everyone was excited about this. Until they hit Friday afternoon, which was a magnificently beautiful day in Rome, and was the only half day of the whole trip that they could go shopping. And 
the vast majority of our group chose to go shopping. <laughs> Probably chose the better part, as they say. But there was a small group, some students and some, some grown-ups. And we're early, because you got to get in there early. We had pretty good seats. And so I'm having a blast at this point, because the students are curious. Not a quality that I attribute to them very often. They keep that to themselves too much. But here they're stimulated, and they are asking tons of questions. And I'm having a great time answering them. And we are laughing, laughing our heads off about this, that, and the other thing. And in front of us, in the row in front of us, there were two empty seats in the middle of the aisle. And two, um, no offense, but two religious women climb over everyone to get to those seats and plop themselves down in those two seats. And we continue our banter. And these sisters in front of us turn around to me and say, Shh! This is not a place for laughing. This is a place for silence. Which, of course, made me laugh, <laughs> so, which wasn't a good thing. I'm, I better be, better be careful here. I'm going to be escorted out. Another time we were, um, we would, every year we go, if we're not going to Mass with the Pope, we'll, we'll have Mass ourselves at one of the chapels somewhere in St. Peter's. And this one particular year, we were assigned to the upstairs, which we rarely are. And the chapel, just you come in the door, there's the Pieta, and then there's a chapel. It's a pretty large chapel. And under the altar there are now the remains of Pope John Paul II. Um, so this is going to be our chapel. Well, this is kind of cool, except the altar's plastered against the wall. <laughs> I've never, never, never done that. <laughs> no idea how to do that. I vaguely remember, actually, when I was five years old and practicing to be a priest, that's how I practiced, because that's what we did then. <laughs> but um, never in my... Uh, ministerial priesthood, I presided at Eucharist where I couldn't see the people. So I was not going to stand for this. And so every chance I had, I was facing them. But there were certain places where you need an altar and you need things put down. And I had my face to the wall. And um, anyway, we get to the point where it's behold the Lamb of God. And I'm not about to do this facing the wall. So I pick up the chalice and a patent that was, didn't have any sides on it. And I turn around to say, behold, the Lamb of God. And five hosts fly off the paten onto the floor. And one of our members, who was herself a religious sister, flies out of her seat, picks them up, puts them on the paten. And I say to the group, we're going to follow the 10-second rule here, <laughs> which evokes laughter, <laughs> which evokes Security guards in numbers coming down upon us to chastise us for laughing. So I was like, this is, this is bad. This is not good. But um, in contrast to St. Peter's, uh, my favorite place in Rome, and growing to be one of my favorite places in the world, is a church off the Piazza Navona, which on the outside of it looks like nothing. It's got a horrible exterior. The inside is really quite beautiful. It's the Basilica of St. Augustine. And it is um, the original headquarters, the building next to it was the original, it goes back, back to the 1400s. It's been in our care, our possession. And it was the original headquarters of the Order of St. Augustine after we were formed and had enough oomph to have a headquarters in Rome. And we were there until the early 20th century when um, the Pope moved us closer for some reason. But inside the Basilica of St. Augustine, the first time I went in there, 
it was like, this is, this is nice. You know, and I didn't notice too much. I said, I feel at home here. And my first visit, I was like, well, these are my friends. I recognize all the, the frescoes and I recognize the statues and the side altar. They are, they are people who I have, who have accompanied me through much of my journey since I met Augustinians when I was 14 years old um, and been introduced to Monica and Rita of Cascia and Clara Montefalco and Thomas of Villanova and Nicholas of Tolentine. And that's who's there. It's like, oh, I feel at home here. But on subsequent visits, I've noticed something very special to me about the Basilica of St. Augustine. In contrast to St. Peter's, which is incredibly masculine in all of its trappings and all of its, its rituals and things. The Basilica of St. Augustine is remarkably feminine, which you wouldn't say for the Basilica of St. Augustine, really. <laughs> but he's almost inconsequential in the, in the whole thing. If you go through the doors, the front doors of the, of, of the Basilica, off the street, up the steps, off the street, inside, and you are in a beautiful church. And it's gotten really nice. It was damaged by an earthquake uh, about a decade ago, and the restoration has made it spectacular. Let's thank God for insurance. <laughs> but as you come in and you just turn to the left, the first thing you encounter is a very busy shrine, usually with women praying at it, and covered with uh, ribbons and gifts. And it's a shrine to Our Lady of Childbirth which you don't find in St. Peter's Basilica, but there it is in the Basilica of, of St. Augustine, Our Lady of Childbirth and women from all over Italy wanting to be pregnant or aware that they have a very uh, endangered pregnancy will come there and pray for safe deliveries and all the, all the gifts around it are gratitude from women who, um, who have prayed to Our Lady of Childbirth and have been blessed with um, a healthy child. That's step one. A little further to the left, there's a side altar. It has one of those things, because it's valuable, where you have to put coins in to make the lights go on. And this is, I described going to the Basilica of St. Augustine as, again, the ancestral home of the Augustinian family. It is grandma's house, if ever there was one. And like most good grandma's house, there are hidden treasures in it. Who doesn't go into their grandmother's house and find tucked away in a corner somewhere a Caravaggio. <laughs> but that's what you get in the Basilica of St. Augustine. And this particular backside altar, you know, is a Caravaggio depicting Our Lady of the Pilgrims. And there's Mary dressed in a, in a very, uh, the realm of a, of a fairly poor woman, but she has a home welcoming pilgrims who are very poor, so poor they have no shoes on and their feet are blistered, but she's offering them hospitality and welcome and comfort on their journey. Go a little bit up the you know, side aisle, there are, there are pillars. And again, grandma's house, you never know what treasures you're gonna find. And there's four pillars and on four pillars there are frescoes of the four major prophets. And there's one fresco that is well-preserved and particularly beautiful because it's very valuable. And not only in grandma's house are you going to stumble upon Caravaggio's hidden, but in our grandmother's house, there's a Raphael depicting the prophet Isaiah. He's looking scary. 
but it's beautiful. The colors are, are, are beautiful. Well, that's spectacular. Just underneath the fresco of Raphael's prophet Isaiah is a sculpture, not a particularly famous sculpture. It's no great work of art. Nobody is um, praising its, its qualities as an artistic work like the Caravaggio and the Raphael. But it's a sculpture depicting Mary holding the child Jesus with Mary's mother, Saint Anne, looking down at both of them and particularly doting on the infant. And every time I look at it, what I see is Saint Anne is tickling the feet of the infant Jesus. And it dawned on me the last time I was there, it's like, finally I understand the mystery of the incarnation. Why did God become human? Why was the word made flesh? Why did God humble himself to take on our state? And the answer was clear from that sculpture because God wanted to know what it felt like to have your grandmother tickle your feet. And there it is, old relief. And then if you go up that aisle a little bit further is, is the, real, the real treasure of the Basilica of St. Augustine is um, again, a side altar, not particularly ornate or adorned. It's got some nice art around it, but a very beautiful um, repository for the remains of St. Monica. Uh, that's where Monica lives. And I've, I've had this experience with our kids, which have, have shocked me. Like they, they, by the time we usually get there on our tour, they are exhausted. And they've had it with churches. <laughs> and they've had it with dead people under altars. <laughs> they've had it with all this kind of stuff. But it, often we get there and, you know, we're telling them about the church and, and then we finish talking and they will just look at us and say, so where's Monica? And they make a beeline for Monica. Apparently they know a little bit about Monica. They've heard some of the story about Monica. Um, but she's there. Uh, how she got there is um, quite a story. She, she dies in Ostia by, by the sea, um, insists that she be buried there. With the, with the famous words, the confessions, as her sons are arguing, cajoling her to stay alive long enough to get back to North Africa so she could be buried with her husband. And she looks up at them and says, bury this body anywhere. Just remember me at the altar of God. And her remains, so we are, we believe in faith, all faith, um, were discovered in the 1400s by a couple of kids uh, trying to dig a hole to set up what would have been a soccer net. And they dig a hole and they hit a stone and the stone we have, which is inscribed with her name, and it was excavated and her remains were then brought to the Basilica of St. Augustine in Rome. And there's Monica. So already we have you know, something like this is, this is the Augustinian tradition in a, in a very powerful and warm way. This is why I feel at home here. This is grandma's house. This is my family. These are my mothers and my brothers and my sister. Um, but when I, when I take students into, into there or pilgrims into there, um, I tell them the stories of, of all these things. And then I tell them the story of one of the, one of the side altars, which is also really quite beautiful and well done. Um, there's side altars to St. Nicholas of Tolentine and Thomas of Villanova, which are interesting, and I tell them a little bit about that. But I really pause and let them try to appreciate the story of our sister Rita of Kasha, 
um, she's not buried there. She's in Kasha, which is up in the hills somewhere. And, um, and Rita's story is one of the great feminine stories of the tradition. Rita is known as the saint of the impossible. And she's a very popular saint because uh, people who are facing impossible situations pray to her. And part of her legend where she got the moniker, the saint of the impossible, had to do with some silly miracles about roses growing in her parents' backyard in the middle of February and bees showing up somewhere. It's, it's like, you know, um, but where she really earned the title of the saint of the impossible was by actually doing the impossible. So Rita's story is not a happy story at first. She always wanted to be a nun. From the time she was a child, it was her dream. She lived in the town next to Kasha, Raka Purena. And there was an Augustinian contemplative monastery in Kasha. And that's where Rita's heart was. And Rita was always a, a young girl with great piety and prayer and a deep devotion to the passion of Christ. In Raka Purena, there's a hill. It's a hill. I mean, it's a steep hill. And every day, you can see these steps. I'm like, I'm not going up these steps, no. But every day, the young Rita would go up these steps to the top of this hill where she would pray. But her family, of course, had other designs for Rita. And they insisted that Rita get married. And in Raka Purena and Kasha, uh, families were everything. And family loyalty was everything. And when you have families that are everything and family loyalty is everything, you usually have families fighting with each other externally. And Rita is married to a man um, who is not a nice guy. And he is very much involved in the criminal activity of, of the region and of his family and against other families. Um, we know that he was abusive to her. Uh, we know that they had two sons. And we know that in the course of him carrying out his criminal activities, he's murdered by the opposing family. Um, I'm not sure Rita shed too many tears for him, but what she's worried about is her sons, who as good Italian boys raised in this environment, know that they are duty bound to avenge their father's murder. And they're old enough now, they're teenagers, they could do this. And they, of course, are set on fire with this mission. What am I called to do? I have to murder my father's murderers. Which would, of course, result in them being murderers. And then probably being murdered themselves. Not a happy thing. And this is Rita's. So Rita, Rita does what she does. She prays. And it's, it's a hard part of the story to tell because the way her sons are rescued from uh, ruining their own lives by becoming murderers themselves and then losing their lives by being murdered is a plague comes through the town and her two sons die in the plague. So she loses them to death, but not their souls and not their integrity and not their reputations. They, she somehow manages to preserve the eternal life of their sons, of her sons. Now Rita thinks she's free to pursue her dream and to uh, enter the convent in Kasha, except the sisters in Kasha were not willing to accept her. Um, 
some say she was too old. Some say they were unwilling to have a married woman who had been a mother in their midst. But the real reason was they were terrified that if Rita came to live with them, the violence that hounded her family would follow her into the monastery and that they would be in great danger. And somehow or another, this is where Rita earns the title, the saint of the impossible. She gathers all of her power, all the power contained in a woman who's four feet 11, who is widowed and childless and somehow influences the two families to come together and pounds out a reconciliation and a peace agreement. And in doing so breaks the cycle of violence. And with the cycle of violence broken, she's able to enter the contemplative convent in Kasha and become an Augustinian nun. Um, and she has deep devotion to the passion of Christ. She is rewarded with a stigmata of one of the crowns from the crown of thorns embedded in her forehead, but she has a reputation of great sanctity and holiness. And upon her death, miracles start happening in her name. And of course, we in the church put great stock in miracles, identifying saints and all this kind of stuff. And none of them, none of them matched the miracle that she did by breaking the cycle of violence in her midst. I'll take that miracle over any others that happen, no matter how spectacular they might be. Rita pulls that off, makes that happen. So when I go to the Basilica of St. Augustine, that's what I experience. You know, Our Lady of Childbirth, Our Lady of the Pilgrims, St. Anne tickling the feet of Jesus, Monica who had her own who had a conversion story that may not have been as dramatic as her son's, but she had plenty of conversions to go through. Despite her piety, she had a lot to uh, discover about how she was called to be faithful to God. Um, and, Rita, and Monica had this, uh, she, was, she was known for her dreams and being able to really discern God's will and God's plan. And she admits that she blew it once. She was sure that she was carrying out God's will by arranging a marriage for her son to a wealthy family in Milan, um, which goes south. It is one of these dark periods of Augustine's time. His mistress is set away. He is, the, the girl is 11 years old. He's not willing to wait. And Monica admits, I missed it. Because she, she had learned that when messages came to her that were truly God's influence, they were accompanied by a smell, a very pleasant smell. And on this time, she said that smell wasn't there. This wasn't God. But the story goes on, and then she and her son, um, her son becomes a Christian, and they share this vision at Ostia uh, together and see the only vision that we have recorded that is by two people at the same time having a common experience of a vision of heaven, um, which leads her to be able to say, there's really nothing to live for here. And where my body lies just doesn't matter because I know where I'm going and I'll, that's home. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go home there. So we, ha we have those, those parts of our tradition that um, 
again, St. Peter's Basilica, Basilica of St. Augustine, and I've noticed all over Italy in the little towns and places, there's, there are these, these evidences of, of the, the, the people, the Miriams, who have accompanied the people through the deserts and through the trials and through the plagues and through the, the, the battles and the famines and the sort of thing. They are the saints who are celebrated and they are the saints who are venerated. And every once in a while you get a male in there, but there's just women all over the place venerated that way. Which leads me to ask the question, you know, we met Miriam as the hero of the Exodus, the heart and soul of the Exodus. Not a big, not a, you know, not a main character in the story. Her brothers get most of the lines and her youngest brother, Moses, gets all the credit. But it's clear from the story that Miriam was the heart and soul of that journey from slavery into freedom. And it was a ministry, a mission of accompaniment. So while her brother's up on the mountain communicating with God face to face, and her other brother Aaron is dressed up in his vestments, um, following the orders to carry out the, the words of the work of holiness, Miriam's walking around among the people who needed plenty of encouragement and often found not, lacking from Moses and Aaron. Somehow Miriam sustains them. So when I reflect on the women of the tradition, it's like, okay, this is a, an incredibly important part of it. Who sustains us on this journey? Whose visions, whose faith, whose accompany, whose presence with us allows the community of believers to take those steps into the unknown um, when we're not necessarily trusting our leaders. And these are the women of the tradition that, that, that come along. Some of the ones that, that stand out, again, I, um, this course that I teach in Christian spirituality, I usually invite the students to research great figures of the, of the Christian spiritual tradition. And I keep wanting to get my list expanded. I make sure there are always as many women as there are men. Usually there are more women than men on the list. Depends on how many students there are. Um, and, and they are stunned by what they, they discover. Um, because again, these people are, they've been around for a while, but they haven't been steeped in all this tradition. And so they'll, they'll die, take a deep dive into someone like Hildegard of Bingen and be shocked. Or someone like Julian of Norwich, whom they've never heard of. Or someone like Teresa of Avila, who they've heard of, but didn't know that much about. And they start uncovering this and they're, they're amazed. It's particularly delightful. Because a lot of our, a good number of our students would refer to themselves as recovering evangelicals. So they haven't met any of these people. <laughs> and they come away from their research project and their presentation saying, this is my new best friend. And, and they're touched by this in some very deep way. And that's happened to men and women as, they, as they've done the research on, on these people. Um, some of the ones that have become my favorites because one of the things that maybe these, these women might represent is the Marys of the tradition, of the Martha and Mary character. Because what they have a, a great knack for is discerning and listening to the voice of God deep within them. Not the shouting that's coming from bishops and cardinals and popes and pulpits, 
but to listen and hear and somehow bring it forth. And it comes forth with some influence. So Julian of Norwich is a stunner. Julian of Norwich lived at a time and in a town that over the course of her lifetime, 50% of the population of Norwich was killed either by plagues or by um, violence and a peasant's revolt. It was a pretty dark time. And this plague, COVID was nothing compared to this plague, even though COVID was pretty horrible. The Black Plague was horrible. It would kill you within a day. You got it, you'd be dead by the afternoon. And again, nearly 50% of the population in three waves of the plague go through. And Julian has her own near-death experience. Anyway, she becomes an anchoress, um, which is a strange thing, <laughs> but that's what she did. But her great gift was this, these visions that she had, dreams or visions, and the visions of the suffering Christ, who is joyful in his suffering. The suffering he, she depicts is horrible, but the feelings that she's approaching is like, nobody's sad here. These, you know, and she's, she's delivering and communicating to the rest of us what Jesus is communicating her in the vision is like nothing but pure love in the midst of the suffering. No judgment, no condemnation, no blame, just pure love. And there's a joy in her visions. And so the, you know, her famous quote, um, all will be well, all matter of things will be well. Well, look out the window, ain't so well. And yet in the power of her vision, she says, what you're seeing in front of you, horrible as it is, is not the story. There's a deeper story and we need to we, let it comfort us, let it listen to us. With great trepidation, I'm gonna talk for two minutes about Catherine of Siena, because I don't know very much about her, um, except a remarkable woman who had somehow the chutzpah to speak truth to power. And I kind of think, no offense, but she was just crazy enough to get away with it. <laughs> crazy enough to do it. And crazy enough to do it in a way that was so convincing that she had to be listened to by the most powerful men of the day. And brings about a reconciliation and a, of a schism within the church by the force of her words while men are being petty and silly and this kind of stuff. And she calls that forth. Um, that may not be a Mary thing, that might be a, a Miriam thing in a, in, a, in a big way. And Teresa of Avila, um, you know, a wealthy woman, always a troublemaker. She was a troublemaker from, uh, as a child, she was always a troublemaker. And she enters a convent for wealthy women. So, of course, they all bring their own servants, which is great. And she somehow realizes that this isn't the, the thing. And she takes on the work of reforming the Carmelites, reforming religious life, and does it with on the power of her own mystical experiences. But mystic though she was, leader though she was, um, I just find her absolutely delightful in her humanity and her down-to-earthness, you know, and um, the story goes that, you know, she's in her, in her study and someone comes in with you know, another problem, another disaster, another catastrophe, another enormous obstacle in the way of getting anywhere. And her response is, it's not one thing, it's another. 
And then the, the famous story where she's traveling, because she traveled a lot. She did a lot in a, in a short period of time, opening 30 some convents um, and seeing them. That's, that's a lot of work. Um, she's traveling around and her carriage um, breaks an axle and falls into a ditch. And her prayerful response to her spouse is beautiful. You know, this is the way you treat your friends. No wonder you have so few of them. <laughs> and on they go. Um, in the middle of all that, that kind of stuff, one of the places we visit on our pilgrimages to Italy is um, the monastery of Liceto, which is in Tuscany. And Liceto is, an, is one of the earliest foundations of the Augustinians after we became an order. And at first it was a, a, a convent for men. It's always fun to teach, our, teach our, our pilgrims from America that in Italy, women live in monasteries, men live in convents. <laughs> Get our heads around it. Liceto is now a monastery, but it was, for most of its history, was a convent. And it has a whole history of, of um, blesseds and sanctity. And um, there is a story that one of the, one of the friars there, uh, Catherine would come, Siena's not that far away, would come and, and consult with him. And somebody called her her spiritual director, but a Dominican corrected me. No, 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 can't. Okay, fine, whatever. But there's a place where she would sit and in the in the courtyard to talk to one of the, the Augustinians at, at Luceto. But like many of these monasteries over the course of history, it, it um, was taken over by the government, in and out, um, turned into a fortress, turned into a, a weapon supply depot, um, and then fallen into great neglect and this sort of thing. And in, in the early 1970s, the Italian government, which owns it, um, looked at this place. It's an old place. It goes back to the 1400s, uh, early 1400s. And they say to the Order of St. Augustine, do you want it? And the first call goes out to the friars in Italy. Who wants to go and rebuild Liceto? And the guys would go and look around and they go, nope, <laughs> nope, not us. The girls came. Yeah, we'll do this. And so they moved in. And they're still there. And it is, it is a thriving community of, of contemplative sisters. It, it's small right now, not because of death and attrition, but because they have gone out to found other, other monasteries. So they are working on building it up. And our students have never experienced anything like this. And they'll meet, one of, they'll meet one of the sisters who will tell them their story, and they are absolutely enthralled. And we go to midday prayer and hear them sing and never seen anything like this. And it's a very touching moment. But the girls were going in there. The guys wouldn't have anything to do with it. So there's some Marthas in, in, this, in this whole story as well happens. Um, and so we need to look and see where are the Miriams of our tradition, and there's lots of them accompanying. There are plenty of Marys. Who are, who are tuned not to the voice of magisterial teaching, but to the voice of Christ the teacher living within them, attuned to the mystical visions, not limited by doctrines and dogmas, but allowing the revelation of God to come forth in fresh, new, but always true ways, and sometimes able to articulate it in a way that no one can argue with, that are just stunned into silence. And what a great gift that is. Um, so I'm sure you have, I mean, we have, you know, I mean, well, 
I'm sure you all have stories, thousands of stories about founderses and founders and great women in your congregations and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was asked one year, they haven't asked me again, which is fine. <laughs> um, actually, this was the days when I was doing a lot of out talking to everybody. And so my own community says, why don't you give us a talk at our chapter? And in the midst of the talk, I think somebody asked me the question, like, what would you suggest we do? Or, or you know, where would, where would you suggest we look for guidance and inspiration? And I, and I said, well, it even bad and I, I said, we need to listen to our sisters. We need to listen to the women religious. They are living a religious life that is far more prophetic than the one we're trying to do. And we are trapped in a sacramental system and we like doing sacraments and we're very good at doing sacraments, but there's a more to it and we need to listen to that. And I've never been invited back again. <laughs> you know? So whatever that is. But there is still the need for the evangelists to the evangelists and apostles to the apostles. And as we look at the, um, the future of the church, which is a hard thing to look at, because who knows? Who knows what it's going to be? In one way, it will not be whatever we have known. In another way, it will be everything it has always been. But somehow or another, it needs to emerge. And um, it needs people who can have the creativity and the vision. It needs people who um, aren't constrained by, by boundaries and rules too much, but have a fresh look at things. It needs, as the people of God have always needed, it's women to hear, speak, work, accompany, guide, and allow, them, allow themselves to be led in ways that are just essential and necessary. Because that's the thing. It was the women who found the tomb empty. And we just might be at a point in the life of the church where what we've got to base our future hope on is the testimony of women that the tomb is empty. And then we might need to see what happens from there. But we have a, we have a tendency to want to fill up tombs pretty quickly and put our hopes in things that are not risen life, but our life that has not yet died yet. And we just might need, as the church has always had, as the people of God have always had, women like Hannah, who somehow or another had the faith to, to trust and believe that despite the fact that it was a very dark place all around him and everything was crumbling and all of the institutions that we should be able to depend on are failing miserably, that maybe just God might be doing something new in her without having any idea what it is. And maybe we'll get to this point where once again, the church will live with two women joining each other in a very dark world with absolutely nothing to be happy about, nothing to be hopeful about, greeting each other with unbounded joy as Elizabeth and Mary did on the visitation and able to proclaim with all of their minds and hearts that our souls proclaim the greatness of the Lord.
and that God has looked with favor on his lowly servants as he topples everything around us and brings forth new life. So there's women of the tradition, I guess, that kind of stuff. Um, I was going to say something about the synod, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm a wait and see person on the synod. You know, it's stunning that for the first time in a council of the church, women are, or a synod of the church, there will be women with voting powers. They don't have enough votes. <laughs> There'll be women speaking. We'll see how that goes. But somebody needs to tell us the tomb is empty. And don't look for him among the dead because he exists and lives and is risen among the living. Okay, so I have to say that this was a, this was a lot of fun. I learned a ton getting ready for this <laughs> and um, found it particularly challenging and, and kind of really um, uh, fulfilling and, and, and difficult. So I, I hope that this man talking about women in the scriptures and tradition wasn't too strange, but um, I had a lot of fun doing it, so great.